Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Priyanka Chopra Jonas is an international star. From India's Bollywood to America's Hollywood, she has taken the world by storm. Now she's written her first memoir, already a New York Times bestseller, titled Unfinished. Priyanka takes us on her life's journey of self-discovery rooted in two worlds. As a young woman in India, Priyanka started her career winning the title of Miss World. Miss World 2000 is Miss India. Since then, she starred in more than 60 films and television shows. She was the first Indian-born actor to lead an American network series in ABC's Quantico. FBI, don't move. Drop your weapon or I drop you. Today on Super Soul, Priyanka and I talk about losing her beloved father, marrying her dream man, Nick Jonas, and how she learned to live a fearless life, embracing her ambition. Hello, Priyanka Chopra Jonas. <laughs> Hi, how are you, Oprah? I'm so, so well. Welcome to Super Soul. It is great to see you virtually. Let's give a round of applause to technology because you're in London. Modern technology. Yes, you're in London and we're beaming you all the way across the pond to my garden here in Maui. I know it's, it's late there. And so thank you for staying up late to talk with me. No, of course. How are things going for you in quarantine? How have you fared? Well, when um, the pandemic started in March and we were all told to lock down, um, I was in LA and that's where I quarantined for about six months at home. But um, I mean, I have to say, I kind of, I feel very privileged to say that I kind of thrived through the quarantine. I moved into my new home. I had time with my husband, my dogs. I finished writing a book. I have finished two movies. I've released two movies. And I've had the ability to just do a lot more with myself, which I don't think I had when I was on a flight almost every single day. You know, I felt a sense of grounding to think about what I want to do during this quarantine. I've, I've, I've come out of it feeling insanely grateful um, for having all I have. 
uh, I think that, so it's, it's been a really, I think, good time for me. Yeah, I, I, I feel exactly the same. What was the thing that you learned that you could live without and could not live without during the quarantine? I definitely could not live without my family. I mean, I was so grateful to have the time with my husband, you know, my dogs, my mom was around. How many dogs? My husband's How many parents dogs? came in. I have three puppies. Uh, oh. One is a four-year-old. She's not a pup. Uh, but the other two are, you know, one is a German shepherd and the other is a rescue husky Australian shepherd. And the two of them are a year and a year and a half. And they're just amazing. My three dogs, have, they give me life. I understand. I've had 21 dogs in my lifetime, so I understand that. And dogs in the house changes the energy of the house, period. Completely. What did you recognize in yourself or in your life that you felt you needed to change during the pandemic and you did? Taking time, I think, really. You know, I was always, I spent a lot of time in my life rushing for the next thing, you know, trying to find the next thing. I want to enjoy dinner on the dining table with my friends at the end of the day, you know. I want to maybe catch that movie that everyone's been talking about that I didn't do because I was, I was chasing the next thing. Um, I think that's Speaking something Speaking of I've done. movie that everyone's been talking about, one of my favorite to watch during this time was White Tiger. Wow. Yay! Oh, my goodness so gracious. Happy. And I called up Ava DuVernay, who, who is executive producer with you. And, and Ava said, this movie happened uh, in part because of your involvement. Why did you want to do this film, White Tiger? I had read the book in about 2008. And I just went, I actually read that the movie was being adapted for Netflix on Twitter, like on one of the trade magazines, like where we get our news, everybody gets their news. And I read it that the movie was being adapted and I told my agents to call and offer my services as an executive producer. Because when I was seeking work in America, I remember about five or six years ago, uh, I just thought that it was, it was not really in the consciousness of, of the filmmakers that a leading mainstream part can be played by a brown person. And I didn't want the movie to be put into an independent movie or in the, be put into a genre film box, which ends up happening when you see the leading cast is all Indian. Right. And so I really wanted to be able to EP it and get as many eyeballs as I can to the movie because the story is universal. Um, the narrative is about a class divide that exists everywhere yes. in the world right now. But I just wanted to, I just am mentioning that because I, of course, we're here to talk about your memoir, but I just thought you all did such a beautiful job with that story. And you're right, caste being existent force, not only in India, but in other places of the world. Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, this year was one of Absolutely. past year, was one of the most exquisite things I, I, I read. And I, I just wanted to give you oh, for that. Oh, coming from you, that means so uh, much. So good. And immediately after I finished watching, I texted five other friends and told them, you got to see this. So that's when you Yay. know you have a good film. Good film. Thank you so much. That means so much. So at a very young age, may I say, 38, you have written your, <laughs> I will say, your first memoir, already a New York Times 
bestseller. Why did you feel this moment? Was it because you had all that COVID time and had all the journals over the years that you thought, I will now turn that into something and release it to the world? I have to say a little bit of it had to do with that, but I'd committed to writing the book in 2018 and between all those flights and little time that I would get in all the hotel rooms that I lived, I could just never write. But I had this time because of COVID and that helped me really delve deep. And honestly, I also feel like I am as a woman in a little bit more of a secure place where I felt like I could leave behind the insecurities of my 20s and like not worry about the things that used to scare me before as much. I have a little bit more confidence in myself and what I bring to the table professionally, personally. So I think that really helped mm -hmm. me address my life. And I always just wanted to write a book and I thought the easiest way to do it would be to write about my life. <laughs> and it wasn't. It, it, it's challenging, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't think it would be as much because you're like, okay, well, it's your life. How hard can it be? But right. if, if you want to dig deep, which I really wanted to, um, it can be uncomfortable. And, you know, it can be, there were many times that I wouldn't finish writing about something because I just didn't know how I really felt about it. I had to process my emotions from yeah. a bird's eye perspective before actually writing about it. That's why it's such a cathartic process. And you begin the book with a dedication to your father saying, um, uh, Dear Papa, much like the title of this book, your story was unfinished. And with that in mind, I dedicate the rest of mine to you. I miss you, Dad. And of course, we see on this beautiful cover, you know, Daddy's little girl. That's my dad's handwriting, actually. Oh. I got him to, I, I got this done a year before he died. And this was my first tattoo. And I lied to him about it because he never wanted me to get a tattoo. But he had to forgive me because, you know, it was his handwriting. <laughs> it was his handwriting. And I know he passed away in 2013. Really, such a young age, 62, after a long battle with cancer. And what do you miss most about him? And do you feel his presence? I miss most about him just how unabashedly proud of me he would be in the littlest things. Even if I, like... If I'm having dinner and I, my plate is clean, my dad would be excited. If I mm. wore a dress that I liked, my dad would be excited. If I, you know, won an award, the littlest thing to the biggest thing, he'd be the loudest in the room. I miss the noise, the excitement he had, the joy um, and investment he had into my life and just how excited he used to be about everything about me. And I, I just... The silence is what I miss. Um, but you know, I, I do feel that he's been very um, instrumental in me being where I am today. I think he's gone up there and has made a few things happen and he's helped me find a sense of peace, which I never had when he was around. You know, he always saw me as this restless, trying to get to the new place thing and he always wanted me to have a sense of peace and I that's when I feel him around when I feel peaceful don't go anywhere more to come after this short break no two travelers are exactly alike and that means no two trips should be either Texas vast landscape of cultures regions destinations and activities 
allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, There's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I know that both of your parents were, you know, military doctors and you moved around a lot. And there were many times where you would feel unsettled about that. And some advice that he gave you was so profound when he said to be like water. When you heard that for the first time, did it resonate? Well, I remember he said it to me when I think around 10, maybe I was studying Mm -hmm. science. And we had recently in geography learned about the power that water has. If it drips on a stone, it can make a hole over time. And, you know, waterfalls crash. And we just learned that. And I think that analogy made so much sense to me at such a young age because I knew that water can be as powerful as a waterfall, you know, slit holes in boulders and rock. But at the same time, it can be as still as a teacup or a snowflake. Uh, or a teardrop. And when my dad said that, that's how he explained it. He was a very visual man, super creative. And that's how he explained it to me. He's like, if you're like water, you can adapt to anything, but you can still choose to be powerful or pleasant. You know, I've spent some time in India. I love, love, love being there. And I've talked to many women there who told me how their families or their, their particular culture valued boys over girls as a child. And you speak of that in the book, the higher value placed on boys, telling the story of the time your mother had found the baby under the car and then gave it to a couple who couldn't have children, and then going and seeing other places, how girls were valued and, uh, versus boys. How did, how did that affect your own reality? Again, it made me feel such a sense of privilege because I was one of the fortunate few daughters of the same country that was treated with a sense of self. Um, mm-hmm. My, I was given a choice in my life 
I was given a choice in having my opinions. And that's what confused me so much is that that's such a complexity to the world where there are so many women. We, we have the privilege and good fortune of having parents that give us wings. And, but there are so many women around the world that don't have the ability to make a choice in their own existence. You know, it's decided when they have kids, it's decided who they marry, what jobs they do, if they have jobs, whether you go to school, whether you don't. And it really shaped a really large part of me. And I think that's a big reason I took on advocacy for like girls getting a right to education or knowing their own rights, right. like ch worth. child, children's rights and their worth. Some of them don't even know that they can go to school or they can say no to getting married um, as a 13 year old. So I think that it really shaped me and my mom never shied away from talking about it. In fact, she used to call it out to me all the time and she used to remind me of the fact that this is an opportunity that I've been given and how lucky I am to have it. Um, and that's something I, I never forgot. Well, this is Super Soul, where we talk about these spiritual things. And in reading your book, it made me uh, reflect on my own trips to India. You know, one of the things that was so powerful is, is the spiritual energy there, the sense of connectedness between people and prayer or spirit or whatever mm. name you have for it all. It's all so very present. Did you have a spiritual foundation growing up? Yeah, I did. Um, I think in, in India, it's hard not to, you're right. Like, you know, with the swirling number of religions that we have that live within the country as well, um, you know, and so you're, I grew up in, you know, a convent school, like when I went to school. So I, I was aware of Christianity. My dad used to sing in a mosque. I was aware of Islam. You know, I grew up in a Hindu family. I was aware of that. Um, so spirituality is such a large part of India that you can't ignore it. But also my family really believed in, um, you know, having a higher power and having a sense of faith. But this is again something my dad used to tell me. It was like basically religion is all, you know, a, a way to get to a supreme power and every religion has a different face to the same direction where we're going. Right. And so that pointing, was, so it's all pointing yeah, to all one pointing direction. Towards the it's all pointing. Yes, yeah. And whatever your face is, whatever your version of that is, is just a means to an end. And so I did grow. I am a Hindu and I, I pray. I have a temple in my home. I do it as often as I can. But at the same time, to me, I'm truly more spiritual. I feel I'm a believer of the fact that a higher power does exist, and I like to have faith in that. During a visit with her aunt and uncle in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Priyanka fell in love with the American high school lifestyle. At the tender age of 13, Priyanka made a gutsy decision and moved to the other side of the world to live with her relatives in Iowa. She spent her later teen years in Queens, in Indianapolis, and finally, Newton, Massachusetts. And then you moved, when you were 16, you moved to Boston, outside of Boston, and you were the target of such racism, such bullying, you say they actually broke your spirit. Yeah, I, I think high school is hard anyway, right? And to be True. coming of age, to understand your body as a woman, at the same time to be, you know, devalued for something I couldn't, I can't change or, 
you know, I, I wasn't even aware of the fact that this was something that I should feel embarrassed about. But I guess when I was made to feel like, did my clothes smell funny when I walked by in the hallway or people smelled curry or, you know, little things like that at 16 are so detrimental to sense self-worth, your sense of self. And the things that kids say, so horrible. I think it's probably also, it's just being mean and, you know, trying to hurt someone where you know that they are gonna hurt. And uh, in retrospect now, I think that they probably didn't even know what they were really doing. It was just trying to hurt somebody that you wanted to mm -hmm. target. But at that time, at 16, I remember I was like, I don't want to live in this country. I want to go back home. I want my mommy. And I, you know, called my mom and she was on the next flight over and we went back home. But at that time, I remember feeling profoundly affected by it. And then going back to India, you were the girl who'd been to America. And so yeah. things were, things became very different. You know, I was, I was, as I was reading, unfinished, perfect title for someone 38, <laughs> let me just say. Uh, as I was reading it, I was thinking, whew, what is the best revenge on earth is that you were bullying me last year and this year I become Miss World, okay? I couldn't even have written it myself if I, I mean, was writing a story. And when you, when that happened, do you, I, I don't know, that the nature of my personality would be to think about all the people who bullied me. But when that happened, do you even have the energy or time to think about all the people who bullied you and say, and, and say to yourself, how do you like me now? How do you Not like me now? Not at that time. <laughs> but it did yeah. after I got used to the crown on my head for a second. And especially after I became Miss World, I was thrown into the deep end so badly. I, I, I didn't come from a pageant family. I didn't come from desiring that. You know, I loved watching Miss India. I used to watch Miss World, but I never thought I could be part of it. So at 17, when you're thrown into this crazy world of pageants internationally and then movies, I was just, I was just trying to keep my head above water at that point. But a few years later, I, I had I, that moment. Can I interrupt? Can I interrupt? I think yeah. the funny thing is you didn't even engage yourself to become a part of the pageants. It's because your brother, Sid, wants to get you out of his space and tells your mom, hey, send in her picture for this. Send her to Mumbai and send her to he Mumbai. got his room back. Yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty funny. I really do give him a lot of credit because I don't think I would have had this career or this job if it wasn't for his ingenious idea. Yeah. So if you if if, that, if your brother Sid at that moment, I I, I know this, uh, having paid attention to my life and the lives of so many other people, that every single moment, every choice that is made, determines the moment that allows us to sit and talk to each other now, in my garden. And had your brother not done that, what course, which literally changed the trajectory of where you were headed, where do you think? you would be if you hadn't been in that pageant, yeah. I've always had a um, real big interest in science and um, technology. So I, I do think I would have done something in that world. Um, but I also, as my nature is I'm a student of life. Like I'm not someone who ever rests on my laurels or I think that I know everything. I don't. I put my head down, I listen, I learn. So I think whatever I may have gone into, I would have come out okay.
you know, um, mm -hmm. yeah. because I'm willing to learn. Yeah, yeah. I love that attitude because it means you were open to life. Yeah, and I really, I'm, I'm a big believer of the fact that life is really a gift. You know, I mean, oh, it's so amazing to be able to live and meet people and have choices in the things that we do. And um, so I'm, I'm someone who doesn't take it for granted at all. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. You obviously are a woman raised by people who loved you and that love allowed you the confidence to stand up for yourself when it mattered. I love the story that you write about when a director wanted you to perform a kind of sultry dance and strip down to your underwear and you ended up the next day saying, I quit. Where did you find the strength to stand up for yourself, knowing your self-worth and your value at such a young age? I have to say that comes from my upbringing. My parents yeah, I would say so. always gave me that. My mom told me when I was nine years old, whatever you do in life, you will be financially independent. Who says that to a nine-year-old kid? Like, I didn't even know what financially independent means at that time. But that was what my parents were, you know? I was told to have an opinion in a room that disagreed with me. My dad said, if you don't have an opinion, what's the point of you being here? And I was like, wow. that's right. You know, so I was always encouraged to have a voice. My regret with that incident is that I never said anything to the filmmaker. I was so scared. You know, I was new in the entertainment business and girls are always told that, you know, you don't want to get a reputation of being hard to work with or, you know, you don't want people to say, oh, she yeah. makes a scene. So I worked within the system. And that's my regret is that, you know, I never stood up to him and said what you did was wrong because I was scared. But the only way I knew how to, how to deal with it was to just step away from it and have grace under fire. And that's what I did. And that's what you did. Well, to be able to stand up for yourself when you're that age, that really is enough. And now you would do something different, perhaps. You would stand Absolutely. up for yourself and say something to whomever is, 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 is being inappropriate with you in a way that could affect that person and other people. But just, just to be able to stand up for yourself, that is so huge. You know, I hear my friend Jimmy Iovine was a big inspiration to your music career, and you teamed up with Will I Am for your first single when a video of the song debuted during an NFL game. Social media erupted with just some of the worst comments ever. How did you handle that? 
That was really shocking to me. I had, I didn't see that coming. I was very blindsided by that. Um, Cause I was so excited about this first song. I'm working with Will I Am, and you know I shot the music video, and I was so proud because I was stepping into American pop culture, and I really wanted to be a part of mainstream American pop culture. And this was like, what bigger than you know Thursday Night Football? And then to hear, I, I actually was quiet for a couple of days because I had a sense of shock that it was so vile, so racist, and so public. This was all on social media. It was out there, people discussing it, people commenting, people saying, yay, great, people saying no. It was, it threw me for a spin a little bit, but it also, once I found my feet, and the fact that the NFL gave me a second, you know, season, and they stood by me, and it gave me, a, it fed me, actually, to, normalize, you know, people that looked like me in mainstream entertainment. That why was this such a big deal? It shouldn't have been. I'm just a girl singing a song. Yeah. You know? And people saying horrible things like, go back to India, go back to your country. Why are you singing our song when it's a, why are you singing that? It's American. You're not, I, yeah. You know what? It's interesting. You just saying that makes me realize, uh, affirms even more uh, what you've written through Unfinished, that whenever you're faced with a challenge, the bullying, look at how the bullying, leaving America a year later, now you're in this world, you take what the bullying, the vitriol from your, your singing with Will I Am and say, you know what, I'm gonna normalize people seeing more people like me. Next thing you do, you're making more movies where brown skinned people are being seen, so you take what is adversity and turn it into something that is meaningful and powerful for yourself. Well, thank you, Ed. My husband usually says that to me. He was like, I don't know you have, he calls it my superpower. He says, whenever like the roof is falling and the ceiling is caving, I'm solution oriented. And I'll be like, all right, how do we, what is the next thing? How can we get out of this and thrive? <laughs> Speaking of your husband, you brought him up. Uh, I read where you said your mom, you think, dreamed him up or had some spiritual force in bringing him into your life because you'd been in bad relationships and your mother said, I hope that one day you just meet somebody who sweeps you off your feet. And then along comes Nick Jonas and you are swept to the dead off your feet. I was really swept to the dead is absolutely the right adjective. Because I, I didn't, I, I may have judged the book by the cover. Um, I didn't honestly take it very seriously when Nick was texting me, you know. I was 35, I was like, I want to get married, I want to have kids. He's, you know, in his 20s, I don't know if that's something he'd want to do. Like, I did that to myself for a while till I actually went out with him. And nothing surprised me more than, you know, him. He's such a self-assured man, so sensible, so excited about my achievements, my dreams, um, you know, such a true partnership that he offers me in, in everything that we do together, um, that I truly believe that my mom manifested him because that was her marriage. She had a marriage of partnership. They worked together, they lived together, they built home together, they built a life together in equal partnership. And I saw that growing up 
And I'm just amazed that I found exactly what I kind of grew up with, with Nick. And um, I just kind of swept, I let it happen. <laughs> that is a true spiritual partnership. Gary Zukav, who's been on Super Soul many times, says that a spiritual partnership is a partnership between equals for the purpose of spiritual growth, meaning one wants the other to rise as much as they want themselves to rise. And uh, I, I loved where you shared that he made a list of five things that he loves about you. Will you share those? Well, I made the list of five things that, first of all, I wanted in, then this was before I met Nick. And I mm -hmm. remember writing it down one New Year's Eve or something and putting it in my wallet, you know, as if it was going to happen. And that was Nick. Like, that happened six months later. He comes into my life and he was exactly all of those things, which was, you know, I wanted somebody who was honest and, you know, comes from an honest place all the time. I didn't want the drama. Someone who knew family, who loved family, because I come from a large family. I want some, a house full of, you know, friends and family. You know, someone who loved his job and because I love mine and I find purpose in my work and I wanted someone who was creative enough to find purpose in their work. The other one I think was that he should, uh, <laughs> he should understand business and finances because I don't. <laughs> I had a silly one like that, but really Nick is all of those things. Um, and you know, I, another one was confident in himself. I cannot stand insecure men. It is such a pet peeve of mine, you know, when it's not a good look um, on anyone, but specifically not in a relationship on your guy. And nope. I, and Nick was just all of that. I read that one of the things he loved most about you or, want, or, or, or admired most in you was your ambition. Mm. That was one of the first things he said to me, actually. Yeah. He was just so excited about everything that I did. Every time I would come up at home and have, you know, say something that I'm excited about, like he's watched The White Tiger six times. He, you know, talks about it to all his friends. He, he's read <laughs> the book like seven times. You know, he's just a champion. He reminds me so much of how my dad used to be. And, you know, my dad is, is such a, was such a big cheerleader of mine. And now I feel like I'm married to, you know, my cheerleader too. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, you are married in a three-day global extra... I mean, was that an extravaganza? <laughs> Whoa. What was, uh, so much was happening. Could you remain present in all of it? Actually, I was only and only present because first of all, we were only 110 people. And a three-day wedding is very normal in Indian family, actually, because we have a lot of pre-rituals. Um, the mm -hmm. idea of Indian weddings usually is, it's not just about the bride and groom, it's the families that also family. get married. So yes. it's really important for extended families to get to know each other. Hence, it's usually two or three days. But here we threw in a Western wedding into the mix as well. So hence it became, you know, three, four days. But it was just 110 people, the most important people in both our lives. And 
we really created a very immersive experience for both sides of our cultures. Um, I remember we made like little books during the wedding which said um, Indian weddings for dummies and Western weddings for dummies because a lot of my family had never been to a Western wedding and a lot of Nick's family had never been to an Indian wedding. Um, so it was really funny to actually watch these two completely different cultures embrace each other and kind of mingle and mix and become one that it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. With so many things going on, what was the most meaningful moment for you from those three days or a series of moments? I think my mom walking me down the aisle was a mm. really, really big moment. I, when I asked her if she would, she was a little hesitant because she was like, that's something your dad would have done and I can't step into his shoes. Did you feel your dad's presence on that day? Oh my gosh, I, I, I extended my hand. I remember I was walking down the aisle. I extended my hand for my mom to come and I felt my dad's presence in such a big way in that moment. My mom and I clutched onto each other when we were walking down the aisle, like for dear life. And I know silently that's what we were feeling, him. Mm, so beautiful, so it really beautiful. It was, it was. Yeah, and neither of you spoke about that, but both of you felt the same thing. In our silences. Yes, in your silences. Do you, you and Nick hope to have a family one day? You were saying earlier how important family is to you. Hopefully, I mean, you know, it's like I said, you wanna make God laugh, tell her your plans. So I'm not one who makes those plans, but yes, uh, absolutely, whenever, you know, it's the right time, it's something that we would definitely want. You know, one of the beautiful things that you wrote, you said, as a child, I viewed my parents' relationship as fairy tale perfect. Uh, they had their problems, of course, like every couple does, but they had one rule, and that was that they never fought in front of the kids. And I learned over the years of interviewing so many different therapists over, uh, on The Oprah Show that when you fight in front of your kids, it changes them. It, it just literally changes who they are because they think it's somehow energetically about them, and they think it, it feels like they're losing their safety and, and protection. So has that been a hard act to follow or has it been something that you uh, brought into your own marriage of not arguing? Oh, we argue, of course we argue, like everyone. We don't argue in front of our dogs, for sure. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's something I hope to take forward in, in my life, for sure, because I know how it benefited me and my brother. Um, we never felt like we were the reason for any sort of discomfort between them. I've never actually saw, I've seen it twice maybe, where I felt that my parents were having a situation, but it would always be behind closed doors, in their bedrooms, like when there was silence, then I would probably know something's up, but I never saw them yelling at each other, screaming at each other, never, and it, it gave me such a sense of balance. As you ha already have here, given credit to your parents and to honor what they gave to you because only when you're so fully loved can you attract other people who are whole and loved you know that's that's how it happens that's what we know truly i think just when you feel cherished as a child when you feel encouraged as a child you grow up into an adult which has who has a sense of confidence when we you know you step into a room 
you feel right. like, all right, I have family. I have something to fall back on. I have someone who loves me, who cares about me, that I can walk into any room and hold my own. It really gave me that sense. And I love, I really appreciate your choice of word when you feel cherished. Do you realize, I, just, I realize that you just saying that word, that there are not many people in the world who can say, I grew up and I was felt cherished. That's true. Unfortunately, it's the truth of the world. And I would implore actually parents to, you know, just give their children, especially when they're young, just cherish them, tell them how important their views are, how important their individuality is, you know, not to burden them with their dreams, but to let your children have your own dreams, you know. I, I, I really benefited. That's the greatest gift my parents gave me was a sense of individuality. Okay, I want to go soul to soul with you for a moment since this is super soul. What is the song or book or movie that would be your life's theme or your anthem? That's a hard question. See, I'm a pageant girl. I need to be able to answer this really quickly. <laughs> um, I think my theme would just be, if I could choose a song, it would be any percussive movement. I, because I walk to the beat of my own drum, and I think that I'm someone who's always taken steps in whatever direction I want. So a congo, the tabla, the drums, like something just going at it would be my theme. Because I wake up with a spring in my step. I want to embrace life. I, I am hungry for it, you know? So I think drums Oof. would be appropriate for me. That's a fantastic answer. Nobody's ever said that. What was your greatest fear that you were able to overcome? Uh, one of the big ones was feeling like I belonged in a room. Because I was always mm. thrown into, like I, from a very young age, I was thrown into different atmospheres, right? Like moving schools and going to a different country at 12 years old, being thrown into pageants, being thrown into movies. I, in the beginning, I used to have to remind myself of why I'm in the room, why am I meeting, you know, heads of states and why am I meeting these really important people and to be able to sit across someone who has a, you know, long sense of list of achievements and still feel like I belong. All right. When was your faith most tested? I think around the death of my dad, I was very angry. My relationship with God changed a little bit. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I feel like God it helped me find salvation and come out of it too. But at that time, it was tested. Oh man, I went to every temple there was to go to. I did every prayer there was to do. I met every God, man or woman that I needed to meet. Um, every doctor that I needed to go to, I flew my dad to Singapore, to New York, to Europe, you know, India, everywhere, just to do whatever I could to prolong his life. Uh, it's such a helpless feeling. Mm. What is the best, most rewarding aspect of being unfinished? Just that you're not pursuing perfection and we don't have to all be finished and tied up in a neat little bow and have every button buttoned. You know, life is messy. It's, it's not simple and complete and perfect. And I think the best thing about being unfinished is that you're not striving for perfection because it's just 
futile. We're never going to get it. We're always going to change. And it's okay to leave things unfinished. All your friends and families around the world in India can watch this episode. So what do you want to say to everyone in India watching us right now? That I just miss India. I haven't been back since Holi last year. And, you know, India's my home. And I just want to come back and visit and smell it and live it and meet my friends. And I also want to, you know, do a Hindi movie. I haven't done that for a while. So I just miss home a lot. I just want to be able to get on a flight and land in Mumbai. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Priyanka. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a delight. Unfinished is available now wherever books are sold. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.